Find please in your copy of scripture, if you brought it, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 1, and um, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to begin reading at verse 1, Matthew 1, 1. <clears throat> Hillbilly Elegy was a blockbuster New York Times bestseller book in 2016. It was made into a movie recently uh, on Netflix. Carrie and I watched it a few, a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and I'll say up front, let me warn you if, you, if you hear me tell the story and you want to watch it, just be warned, you will probably be as offended as Carrie and I were with the language. It's rough, but it's a, it's a rough story, but it's a good story. The story begins in Breathitt County, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. J.D. Vance, the author of the book, it's his, it's his story. His roots run deep in the hills and hollers of eastern Kentucky. Several decades ago, uh, J.D. Vance's grandfather and grandmother uh, left Appalachia and, and, and moved to Middletown, Ohio. They left as teenagers because um, J.D. Vance's grandmother became pregnant at age 13, and so they fled the scandal and moved to Ohio. But there followed them the, uh, the dysfunction, the, uh, the abuse, the violence, the ignorance, and by ignorance I don't mean stupidity, I mean just lack of knowing better ways of living. All the dysfunction of their family followed them uh, to Ohio. And like I said, the language is, is rough in the story because it's a rough story, but it's a story of, of redemption and hope. And, and yet it reminds us that, that often the shadows of dysfunction fall on the next generation and the next and often the next. I titled today's sermon, uh, Hillbilly Genealogy, in reference to the genealogy of Jesus. No disrespect, obviously, to our Savior, but remembering that in the genealogy which opens the Christmas story for Matthew, that in this genealogy there are some complicated stories, even, even scandals. And I'm going to read, if you'll follow along in Matthew 1, I'm going to read that um, genealogy which includes, again, lots of celebratory stories and lots of tragic stories. And there are lots of hard uh, names in here. And just remember, the first one to laugh has to come up and finish the rest of the chapter. So don't snicker while, I, while I'm trying to read these, um, these hard to pronounce names. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. We're going to underline the names Judah and Perez and Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. And we're going to underline those names 
Salmon and Rahab and, and uh, Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and we're going to underline those names. Boaz and Obed, his mother Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and we're going to, we're going to underline that name, Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, or Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob. Mm. And Jacob the father of Joseph. Thank goodness for names like Jacob and Joseph. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And we're going to underline the name Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, appears in both Matthew and Luke. They, they approach the genealogy from different perspectives. Matthew is unique in the gene genealogies of his time in that he includes four women. Even before we get to Mary, he includes four women in the genealogy. It was not customary to include women in genealogies. People went from father to son, from father to son, from father to son, not mentioning uh, the women. That cannot be by accident, uh, and it cannot be unimportant. So we're going to spend our morning looking at the genealogy, specifically at the four women and then the mother of Jesus, Mary, these five women in the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And we'll start with Tamar. And Tamar's is one of the most unusual stories, I think, in all of Scripture. Tamar married a man named Ur, E-R, the son of Judah. But Ur did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God cut short his life. So before they had children, Ur died, leaving Tamar a widow. Now in those days, when, you, when a woman married into a family, she became the responsibility of that family. This was the day before pensions and social security. And so a woman would leave, really leave her biological family. Not cut off all ties, but they had no more, no more responsibility for her. The, financial, the, the, the responsibility for her financial well-being belonged to the family into which she married. So she married Ur, Ur died. As was customary, then she married the second brother, Onan. That was, again, the custom. So she married Onan, but 
Alas, Onan also did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God cut short his life. So before they had children, now Tamar has lost her husband Ur, and now his brother and her husband Onan. There was a third brother, but Judah, the father, looked like he was not going to let his third son marry Tamar, and we can understand why, I guess. But he was sort of abdicating his responsibility. It was his responsibility as the patriarch of the family to take care of, of Tamar. But he sent her in, in, instead back to her original family. And they, they no, more, no more had responsibility for her. So Tamar was in a pickle. She, again, before pensions and Social Security, she had no way to support herself financially. Plus... If, if she could give birth to a child from Judah's family, it would be as if she were giving Ur, her first husband, a child. And so she would be giving a, a descendant to Ur if she could have a child with, with anyone in that larger family, the family of Judah. And so Tamar did a really odd, even weird thing. Judah, who himself was a widower, was on a trip. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced Judah. He didn't recognize her. It was perhaps dark, perhaps she was veiled. He, he didn't recognize her. But through that liaison, uh, Tamar became pregnant with twins. The firstborn of those twins was named Perez. And Perez became part of the story, the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. Now we might wonder why is that salacious, sordid story even included in the, in, the, in the genealogy of Jesus? And I frankly don't know, but I do know this from that story. That story of Tamar and that unusual liaison with her father-in-law reminds us that desperate people do desperate things. It does not it does not explain, it does not excuse bad behavior. It does, though, help us to, to understand it. When we lived in Richmond, uh, one Friday night every month, there were several of us who would walk the streets of Richmond, uh, Richmond, Virginia, where the prostitutes worked. We never shamed them. We never pointed our fingers at them. We always asked them, are you safe? We asked them, uh, can we pray for you? And they almost always said yes. We had sometimes a little bag, a hygiene bag. We had a little card we'd give them that, says if, that said, if you want out, here are two numbers to call. In fact, a policeman once arrested a prostitute and said he found in her shoe one of our cards that said, if you want out, call this number. So one night we were walking and we always walked where we could see each other. And we went so often that people recognized us. The people who, were, who frequented the streets knew who we were and respected who we were. We always walked within sight of each other. But we would break up into groups of two and three. So this night I was walking alongside Dr. Valerie Carter, a, member, a minister on our staff in Richmond. We saw a lady, a car pull over about a block in front of us. We saw a lady get out of the car. We knew where she'd been. She, got, she uh, stepped onto the sidewalk and began walking toward us. And when we met, uh, we greeted her, asked if she was safe, asked her, is there anything we can pray for you about? And she immediately responded, yes, 
please pray for my baby boy. He's sick at home. Now she knew that we knew that she shouldn't be out there. And so she said, immediately after saying, would you pray for my baby boy? She said, and I don't know how else to provide for him. When I looked into her eyes, I did not see evil and I did not see rebellion. I saw desperation. Now that did not make her choices good. It did not excuse her choices. But I remembered that night that desperate people do desperate things. And when we, when we think about curing the ills of our society, the best approach is almost never to beat people up and to shame people. It is often the best approach to help desperate people out of their desperate situations. So Tamar has this liaison with her father-in-law. She conceives. She has twins. Perez becomes part of the genealogy. I wonder if, if the friends of Perez, when he was growing up, if his little friends ever made fun of him because his mother had conceived with, his, with her father-in-law, who was kind of like his grandfather. So it was kind of like his father was his grandfather. I wonder if his little friends ever made fun of him. I'd be surprised if they didn't. So that was Tamar. The next lady in the list is Rahab. And we almost always say, don't we? Uh, we almost always say Rahab the harlot, like Attila the Hun, uh, Alexander the Great. She was, in fact, uh, a harlot. She was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho, the enemy of the Israelites. And, and yet she'd heard stories of Jehovah God, the one true God of Israel. And, and she had embraced him. She knew, she, the first two Israelite men she met, she said, I've heard the stories of your God and I believe they're true. And I believe he hung the stars and I believe he is the one in control of the world. And, and she became ultimately a, a deeply devoted follower of Jehovah God. Well, to make a long story short, she, she was embraced by the people of Israel, and she married a man named Salmon, S-A-L-M-M-O-N. She married Salmon, and they had a little boy named Boaz. I wonder if, if the little friends of Boaz ever made fun of him. After all, his mother was Rahab the harlot. I do think it's interesting, by the way, that in this genealogy, I think, I think God must have whispered to Matthew, when you write her name, don't write Rahab the harlot, just write just plain Rahab. And that's how it appears in the genealogy. Other places in the Bible it says Rahab the harlot, but in the Christmas story, it's just, it's just Rahab. The next lady in the, in the list in the genealogy is Ruth. So Ruth, was, she didn't sleep with her father-in-law, and she was not a harlot. She was, in fact, a, a lady of, of, of stellar reputation. But there was this one thing. Now, <clears throat> she married Boaz. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Hang on. But there is this one moment in her life when she went to see Boaz at night. And, and there's this phrase. It says that she uncovered his feet, uncovered his feet is a euphemism, a polite way that can refer to an inappropriate, uh, intimate physical relationship. 
So there are some people who think that something inappropriate happened that night between Ruth and Boaz. I don't because the Bible describes her in such stellar terms and she is such a devoted follower of God. But some people wonder, I'll just, in, this, in the name of full disclosure, I'll tell you that. So here's her story. Ruth grew up in Moab, which is to the southeast of what we now call Israel, down south of the Dead Sea. And, um, and one day there was a, the rumor, not rumor, the story began to circulate. A new family had come to town and they had two good looking young boys. Well, I don't know about that for sure, but I know about how good looking they were. But this family moved to town and, and the story was they'd come from Bethlehem. And in fact, they had. Naomi was the matriarch of this family, the mother. She had come with her husband and two boys to Moab to escape a famine back in Bethlehem. Well, Ruth fell in love with one of those boys and um, married, married him. His name has escaped me. Milan, M-A-H-L-O-N. So Ruth married Milan, one of the two sons of Naomi. But then tragedy struck. Ruth's father-in-law, Naomi's husband, died. And then Milan, Naomi's son, the husband of Ruth, died. So Ruth is now a widow. And then the other brother, the brother of Milan, died. So now there are these three widows. There's Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, the other daughter-in-law. Well, Orpah decided to stay in Moab, but Ruth said to Naomi, remember these words, wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And in fact, she did embrace the God of Israel and became a deeply devoted devotee, follower of Jehovah God. Well, so Ruth and Naomi moved back to Bethlehem. Now they were poor. Remember, these were the days before pensions and social security. They were two poor widows. But Ruth got a job gleaning, meaning she followed the harvesters around and whatever fell accidentally on the ground, the leftovers she could pick up. She was a poor, young widow working hard. She met the, the landowner, the owner of the field. This story has all the makings of a Christmas Hallmark movie. It's got all, all the ingredients. They fell in love and they were married and they had a son named Obed. I wonder if Obed's friends, when he was growing up, made fun of him. Because his mother was from Moab. She was a Moabite. And the Moabites kind of had a bad reputation. And his grandmother, remember, had been Rahab the harlot. I wonder if, if Obed's friends made fun of him. Well, the fourth lady in this list in the genealogy is Bathsheba, although she's not called Bathsheba in the genealogy, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. It was a not-so-subtle reminder to the people who almost revered King David, remember that this was Uriah's wife. Now, some have wondered if, and, and everybody who's ever, especially everybody who's ever been a teenage boy in, a, in Sunday school remembers the story of Bathsheba. You probably remember it. When David looked down from his palace roof and saw her bathing, and some people have wondered, should she not have been more discreet, more modest? After all, her house would have been up near the house of David, the palace. David's house in old Jerusalem 
the really old Jerusalem sat at the top of the hill so he could from his roof see all the roofs of practically everybody in old Jerusalem. And uh, Uriah's wife Bathsheba, she was from a well-to-do family, so she would have lived in the high rent district up there near the palace. So she surely should have known that David could see her. So should she have been more discreet or more modest instead of bathing on top of the roof where David could see her? Well, in the story, she bears no guilt. There's no guilt assigned to her at all. All the guilt is laid on the shoulders of David, the man in power who took advantage of a vulnerable woman, who exploited a vulnerable woman who had no way of saying no to him. So the story of Jesus includes a a woman who was abused, who was exploited by a powerful man. Eventually, they had a son named Solomon who became part of the genealogy. And I wonder if Solomon's brothers and sisters and half-brothers and sisters in the palace, nobody outside the palace would have made fun of him, but I wonder if maybe some of his half-brothers and sisters made fun of Solomon saying, you know how your mom and dad got together? So there's, there's Tamar and Rahab, and then there's Ruth and Bathsheba, and then, of course, there's Mary. Now, we look back 2,000 Christmases later, and we see that Mary was, a, was the blessed one. She was the one with, with such deep conviction and such great, reputa- or great character that that God chose her to bear the son that would be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know Mary as this highly favored one. But her contemporaries, they didn't have 2,000 Christmases to look back through. And so you know it was somewhat scandalous that she, she became pregnant before she and Joseph were married. So there was that scandal. And then On top of that, she was a poor girl. We know they were poor. She was a poor girl from a nowhere town called Nazareth up in Galilee. I wonder if Jesus' friends ever made fun of him. Remember the story, Jesus, about, you know, why why would those five stories be at the beginning of the Christmas story. I don't know for sure. I think, for one, it, it reminds us of the status that Jesus gave women, the high regard in which he held women. It's not surprising that, I guess, that in his genealogy, women would be, would be honored, would be at least mentioned in ways that they were not in other genealogies. It was not common for rabbis to include women in their circle of students, certainly their traveling circle of students. It was not common for rabbis to include women in their circle of friends, their close circle of friends. But Jesus did. Every image consultant in Judea would have said, never, ever talk to a Samaritan woman at the well. It looks really bad. But Jesus did. Every Every image consultant in Judea would have said, if you're walking along and a sick woman grabs the hem of your garment, do not, do not turn and address her. Keep walking. But Jesus did. Every image consultant in Judea would have said, do not ever, do not ever 
defend a woman caught in adultery publicly. But Jesus did. Every PR agent in Judea would have said, if you go and get yourself resurrected, don't trust the story to women. Make men tell the story. If you make women tell the story, if you give them that responsibility, nobody will believe them. But Jesus did. So Jesus gave women a status. He honored them in ways that, was, that, was un, ways that were unprecedented. So it's not surprising that five women would, would be included in the genealogy of Jesus. But I wonder, and I believe most deeply, that these five, the stories of these five women are, are just, are included because of, of the beautiful picture of beauty from brokenness. All five of those women knew brokenness. Broken dreams, broken promises, broken hearts, broken homes. And yet their stories wove into this beautiful tapestry that became the family tree of the Messiah. You may have already known about this kind of art, but I'm new. I'm just learning about it. Kintsugi. Now, Randy and Janice Hicks spent their career as missionaries in Japan. I called Randy and said, do you have any uh, pieces of Kintsugi art? He didn't, but he did tell me that the Japanese word, and help me get this right, Randy, it's a combo word, a combination word that means gold and joined or connected. All right. Janice has given me this, so that's, it means this. What's that? Attached. There you go. Fresh translation right there. Gold and attached. So this art, and you may have seen it, Kintsugi art is beautiful art, and it, but it comes from brokenness. It's a piece of pottery or a, like a bowl that has been dropped and broken. But it's put together with gold. And so it has these, these beautiful designs in it. And the legend, the Japanese legend behind Kintsugi art is that there was an important man, a shogun, who, who dropped the, his favorite bowl. And he loved that bowl. And he sent it off to the, you know, to the workers, the pottery workers or whoever, to some kind of craftsman to, to fix it. And when they came back, it was fixed. But it was fixed with some kind of ugly little staples and... And that just wouldn't do. And so he sent it to an artisan, to an artist, to see if there was any way he could repair the pottery, the bowl, while maintaining its value. And the artisan, the artist, decided on a new approach. He, he used this rosin filled with gold, mixed with gold. And so when the bowl came back, it was... The shogun, the, the important man, was so thrilled. It was, it was more beautiful than before, more valuable than before. The thing about Kintsugi art is that the brokenness is not hidden. It is, in fact, highlighted and redeemed. Please hear that. The beauty of that art... art and the story of God's grace is that the brokenness 
is not hidden. Rather, it is highlighted and redeemed. Somebody listening to me is so glad people don't know about your brokenness. And in fact, you've worked hard to hide it. But the beauty of grace is that brokenness does not have to be hidden. In fact, it can be highlighted and redeemed. And that story can be told. Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance. It's a, it's a rags to riches story. It's a story of family sticking together when it's hard. It's a story of redemption. J.D. Vance, the author who came from that dysfunctional family, graduated from Yale, and this is a spoiler. He graduated from law, Yale Law School, has a wonderful career at the end of the movie. And I, again, I apologize for spoiling this, but at the end of the movie, they show the pictures of the real people that are represented. And, and then, you know, how sometimes they do when it's a true story, they give the story, just a summary of the story. And it says that his mother who struggled with addiction has been sober for six years and all the beauty, all the beautiful things that have come from that story of brokenness. And at the end of the movie, J.D. Vance says this, where we come from is who we are. But we choose every day who we become. My family's not perfect, but they made me who I am. And our Messiah's family was not perfect, but did God plan that to make him who he was? So that when he would come upon a woman accused of adultery, he would have a tender spot in his heart. Maybe he remembered Bathsheba. When he came upon people scorned by society, not just including, but especially the good religious people. When his heart went out to them, maybe he remembered Rahab. And when he met the poor, maybe he remembered his mother from a nowhere place up north in a little nowhere town called Nazareth. And that he, his mother and father were so poor when they brought him to the temple for his circumcision, they brought a dove. And you, the only way you could bring a dove is if you were too poor to avoid, afford a lamb. Maybe when he saw the poor, he thought about his mother and father, his earthly father. The genealogy of Jesus shaped him into who he was. And your past shapes you, whether it's your family or your own choices. Your, your past inevitably has shaped you into who you are. But you choose every day by God's grace who you will become. Your past and mine, whether it's our families or our choices, have shaped us into who we are. But every day, you and I choose, by God's grace, 
who we will become. We're going to think about that for a moment while Esther plays. Then Jonathan Boyd will come up and have our closing prayer. And I'm going to wait for you down front to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of our church. As others leave, I'm going to wait for you.